0: Francis Chan has been a pastor for over 30 years. He's a New York Times bestselling author of several books, including Crazy Love, Letters to the Church, and Until Unity. Francis and his wife, Lisa, have been married for nearly 30 years, and they've co-authored You and Me Forever. Currently, Francis is in Northern California. He's teaching and discipling the next generation of pastors and leaders. Francis, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Hey, it's great to be with you, Kirk.
0: Francis, we've been friends for quite a long time. I, I, I remember when you were a young pastor in a three-piece suit in Simi <laughs> Valley, California, in that little bungalow that started out as Cornerstone Community, I believe.
1: Yes, I, I remember that. I, I remember the first day I started, I went out, you know, in a normal shirt and my wife's like, you're not gonna wear a tie. My, my grandma is going to be so mad. And so I went on and put on a tie and I wore a tie for, for a couple of
0: years. That's right. Um, and, and, and now you're doing so many things that challenge me and so many others of us. Uh, I want to talk with you a little bit tonight uh, about theology. You've thought deeply about these things and, and, and particularly to talk about the Trinity and the nature of God. So if, if I were to ask uh, 10 people, who is God or what is God? Uh, uh, what is he made of? And I could get 10 different answers depending on who I'm talking to. So, with so many people speaking for God, it's no wonder that we get so confused. Why is it so difficult for people to understand who God is? Well,
1: I, I think, you know, scripture tells us specifically that his, his ways, his mind, there's, a, there's an unsearchability of him. Uh-huh. about him because he's so far beyond us uh, even as we you know talk about this type of uh, subject I, my heart starts pounding a little a little stronger because I'm like oh, this is really sacred like I as this human being this created being I'm about to speak about the creator and try to describe him and that's very humbling I, I mean, it's, it's not like God is someone we just put under a microscope and go, oh, I've got him figured out. You know, we study the scriptures, we memorize the scriptures, we meditate on the scriptures, but there has to be this humility about us that yeah. at the end of the day is saying, I'm a human being and I'm trying to describe someone so far beyond my understanding.
0: So is God knowable? Can we understand who he is? And if so, how?
1: Yeah, I I mean, you know, you go back to uh, Deuteronomy and and God explains that there are things like in Deuteronomy uh, 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So there are things that we can't know but there are things that are revealed that we can know and we try to piece those things together best we can with total humility.
0: Even the way he makes us, the fact that uh, mm-hmm. you know we, we love relationship and God wants relationship with us, yes. he's a relational being. <clears throat> so we, we, can, we can find these things and connecting the dots and looking at scripture and come up with a pretty accurate picture based on what he's revealed is what you're saying. Yes.
1: Yes. Yes. But not, you know, like, like Paul says, we don't go beyond what is written. Right. And, uh, that's where we get into care. You know, we start reading things into the white spaces and go, well, because of this, then therefore this, therefore this, therefore this, let's, let's be real careful. And that's right. And I think I used to look at God, like I could figure him out. Right. You know, I, I take this book and I'm like, okay, if I look at this, you know, well enough and studied hard enough I'm going to figure him out and I would forget okay wait a second what am I talking about I I, it's kind of weird but I don't know if you ever heard of a demodex but it's it's a uh, it's like this microscopic you know creature that lives on your like eyelid eyelash and to me it's like that little creature coming out for a moment and going I know Francis Chan. I've got him figured out. You know, I know Kirk Cameron. I'm like, no, you're a little creature in the socket of one of my eyelashes that comes out at night for a few seconds. You don't know the tiniest bit about me. Like, like, you, yes, you can figure out some truths, but that's the way I look at God. I go, gosh, here's this eternal being in the heavens, and and here I am, this this finite creature that He made. And only thing I can know about Him, I want to come humbly, like this little creature that goes, okay. He revealed this about Him. He showed me this about Himself, but not to arrogantly go, oh, I understand Him. I love that. I'm
0: I, I, I love that you're you're emphasizing the humility that we need to have and the, the otherness of God. He's the creator, we're the creature. And yet I also appreciate, Francis, and this is not something that I can say about all preachers and Bible teachers, sometimes they use the greatness of God as a cloak to go outside of Scripture and describe Him in ways that are not true because He's so great, because He's so much bigger than we are, and then they veer off into the weeds. You stick with Scripture. And uh, I want to ask you about some specific attributes of God. What are some specific attributes of God that we can know that we don't like talking about because they make us uncomfortable?
1: I think uh, probably number one would be the wrath of God. Um, you, you know, a couple of years ago, I, I, even as I was, I was uh, reading. you know, I try to read through the scriptures every year. Our whole church does. And, and what I started doing was, uh, I don't know if you can see it too well on here. But, um, you know, I would highlight in like red or pink, you know, the, the passages that had to do with um, wrath. And then I would highlight in blue the passages that would talk about his promises, you know, kind of like on Mount Gerizim where they would read the blessings on one mountain and then the curses, you know, like, uh, and was it? Was it Ebal, Mount Ebal and Mount? uh, Anyways, that's what he had them do was okay. You read the blessings from here, the curses from here. And I think we live in a time when we just read the blessings And we believe in the blessings and we question all of the the, the things that talk about God's judgment and his wrath. And as I'm reading through the scriptures and highlighting, because I want to know how often does it talk about his promises and how often does it talk about his cursing and his and his wrath? And at the end, there was a lot more red than there was blue. And uh, it just it surprised me because I thought, wow. It seems like even when Jesus came in the Sermon on the Mount, he would say, blessed are those. And then he said, woe to you. Um, it's always been this way. That was the job of the prophet to explain to people, this is what will happen if you, receive, if you obey him. Mm. Here's what happens if you disobey him and don't believe him. That's the, every prophet has two jobs. Explain the blessing of obedience. Explain the wrath if there's disobedience and the discipline. And so we live in a time when we're only telling half of the picture. Um, Who wants to talk about the wrath of God? How how is that going to draw a bunch of people to God? Well, it's, it's the truth about him. The wrath of God is being revealed against the Son of Man. Um, I, uh, last month, I, I memorized the book of Ephesians. I, I took the month. I go. I just want to know this book, and and I'm I'm thinking even right now of, of what he says in there about uh, you know don't let any do not let anyone deceive you because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience um, again chapter two but you know that by nature we are children of wrath. These are terrifying phrases, but that is very much an attribute of God. He's a God of judgment.
0: I think it's important that you're bringing up this subject of the wrath of God, and, and I'm not uh, a professional impersonator, but uh, Alistair Begg once said, without a real wrath, the mercy of God is irrelevant. And, and that's so true, right? We love talking about the mercy yeah. of God. We love talking about the grace of God, but w- you don't need mercy, you don't need grace yeah. if there is not sin that violates the holiness of God resulting in wrath that we need to be rescued from, right? So that oh, actually yeah. is the setup for mm-hmm. the punchline or the uh, you know, the home run yes. of mercy and grace.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, by nature, we were children of wrath. In the very next verse, but yeah. God being rich in mercy, Because of his great love with which he loved us, that even while we were sinners, I I, I mean, that's, even when we're dead in our trespasses, he he sends Christ. I mean, this this is that, but God, being rich in mercy, that's who he is. We have a God who wants to show mercy. So we were by nature children of wrath. But... Because we have a God who is, by definition, by who he is, it's an attribute. It wasn't just something he did at one point. It is who he is. He is rich in mercy. And because he has this great love for us, he made us alive together with Christ. Even when th- This is what motivated. It was his love. It was his mercy.
0: Francis, I was recently... Um in the presence of someone who gave a a, a very motivating message at a dinner, and and in it he was um, explaining how he believed that that God, uh, Jesus spent his life and died for people who didn't even know what they were worth. And there was something inside Mm -hmm. of me that said, well, wait wait a minute. I I think there's something a little bit off about that. And when I think of the the message of the gospel, and I think of the holiness of God, and I think of the sinfulness of of man, Mm -hmm. that we're by nature children of wrath. I think the message of the gospel actually demonstrates the value of grace Mm -hmm. in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, not that he died for people who don't know what they're worth. I think... What we're actually worth is what puts his grace on display when he saves us in spite of who we are and what we deserve. Am I on track there or am I off?
1: I'm with you, Kirk. Probably the first thing I think about in Ephesians when he's saying, sorry, I'll be quoting a lot of Ephesians, but it's just so rich and so in my mind. But it's saying, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. And I go, wait, so before you, wait a second, before you create, before the foundation of the world, before you said earth, you chose me in him to be holy and blameless in your sight. I, I mean, I think about the mind of God and I'm just going, Lord, I'm having a really hard time believing this passage because it's saying that you chose me and and before the foundation of the world. And in love, you predestined us for adoption as sons in Christ Jesus. According to the purpose of your will to the praise of your glory is great. Like this is this is outrageous. What, what kind of God are you? This this love is outstanding. It's 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 like nothing on this earth. But then I do also there's this other side where I go, "Wow, I am worth something to you, God, and my parents died before I could really know them, except for my dad, who didn't want to know me and and so you just you've got rejection all your life, and then you read about these scriptures about this father, this heavenly father who has loved you from the beginning of time. And, and you look at what he has sacrificed and you go, you, wow, I'm worth something. Like someone actually cares that I'm alive. Um, and I think there's people like myself who grew up for years just going, no one really cares if I'm dead or alive. In fact, I think most of the people would rather me be dead. And, um, uh. and it's the idea of, of feeling, worth is just new for some of us. And you go, wow, they actually care about me. And in you know, over time, I, I'm not saying poor me, no one loves me. I'm just saying you grew up. If you grow yeah. up in that way, it's easy to understand the passages of scripture that tell you you're a sinner and you're, you know, you're a child of wrath and go, I get it. I get it. You know? Um, but the other passage that have to do with a God who loves you and, um, sacrifice so much for you that feeling of worth I don't know if we know how to explain it well we're just saying ah it it feels good to be wanted
0: this is why I love talking with you Francis because you're helping us process these things and uh and it's just fantastic when we come back we're going to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit and Francis's popular book on the topic Forgotten God. And we're back with Francis Chan. Francis, we've been, we've been getting pretty deep here in talking about God and the attributes of God. Uh, I'd like to ask you about a subject I know you know lots about, and that is the, the triune nature of God. Meaning that we call, in, in Christian theology, we refer to God as a trinity. In uh, the book of Genesis, in the creation account, we read God saying things like, let us make man in our image. And you go, wait a minute, There's only one God. Why is he using the plural there of of our image and Mm -hmm. us making things? Mm -hmm. Is that where we get the idea of a trinity? And why three, not two or four? Where do we come up with the idea of three persons in one God?
1: Oh, gosh. It is, I mean, it's a collection of so many of these passages where you know, even when Jesus is explaining, I've been looking at John uh chapters 13 to 17, you know, that that final discourse he has with his disciples before he dies. And he he explains these truths to them that that must have been so mind-blowing, because he's talking about his father and 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 the disciples are saying, Well, well, can I see him? Can we see him? And that that'll be enough. And Jesus, you know, says to uh to Philip, is it Philip or Thomas? He, he, I think it's Philip. He says, look, how long have you known me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he goes on and he just begins to explain how he and the Father are one. Yeah. And it's it's not just we're, we're so close to each other that we call ourselves. No, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he, he really starts his gospel you know, was saying in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God from the beginning. And just, just that sentence you go, wait, so was he with God or was he God? Cause it says both. Right. And it's like, yes. And how do we explain that? I don't know. And then he goes on and explains, and I'm going to give you another counselor. And, 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 and it, it's, You read Colossians. You read it's 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 really reading through the Old Testament over and over and over and going, okay, I'm I'm confused because it's referring to the Spirit, but then it calls him God. It's referring to Jesus and the father and and making them one. And so you just have to, you know, the, the idea of that word Trinity, no, you won't find that word in the scriptures, but you just get this mysterious concept of, like you said, from creation that somehow God exists as father, son, and spirit And there's a lot we don't understand about that. Um, But what's beautiful about it, too, is that God says that we are created in his image. So we're somehow made in the image of this triune God who lives as one. And he's, you know, that's why his words in John 14 to 17 are so powerful, because he's saying, I want to abide in you. You know how the three of us are together, you know, or, or we are one? He goes, I'm inviting you into this oneness with me where the Father and Son will, will abide in you. And the Holy Spirit who is with you, he will actually be in you. And it's mind-blowing stuff. But I, I, I don't want to oversimplify because I think a lot of people do that. I just say, this is so mysterious the way that I'm created by this God and the way that he exists. And I believe I will spend eternity like just marveling at him and just his
0: existence. And I think that the Trinity, the concept of a Trinity also tells us that in eternity past, long before God created anything, angels or people or anything, God was not alone. That's a mind-blowing thought for me right there, that God, even though he's one was not alone because there was unity and relationship within the Trinity of God himself, right? And again, I can't explain that. Um, I can't even really understand it, but by faith, we believe it. And it has so many implications in our life. Francis, you wrote a book uh, all about the third person of the, of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And the book was uh, called Forgotten God, mm-hmm. reversing our tragic neglect of the Holy Spirit. Um, What motivated you to write that book? I began
1: studying the Holy Spirit because I just wanted to do a series about the Holy Spirit. And the more I studied, the more I go, wow, I have not thought about him. I think about the Father. I think about the Son. But in our tradition, we didn't really talk about the Holy Spirit. We'd never deny him. We'd always say he's there. But when I'd look at what Jesus said, like it would be to your advantage. This is to your advantage that I go away. Because unless I go, I I can't send the the counselor, the helper, the spirit to you. And just that verse itself, I go, can you imagine right now, Kirk, if you were interviewing me and Jesus was sitting right next to me in the flesh, you would go, oh my gosh, this is my most amazing friends. Just get out of the screen, let him speak. You, you, you know, you would want to interview me every week. We would just get you off the show. And we, I mean, we're talking about the presence of the Son of God. I, I mean, everyone wants that. And then Jesus says that outrageous statement is to your advantage that I'm leaving you. He's telling the disciples who saw him walk on water they saw him raise the dead i mean they saw him like heal the paralytic the blind and and now he's saying hey it's actually to your advantage that i'm not going to be with you and i because unless i go i can't send the spirit and i'm going oh gosh i i, I, I I'm trying to grasp that even now, even though I wrote that book years ago, I'm going, Lord, still, uh, uh, I I don't know if I know that truth and believe it at the core of my being. You said it, but most days I would rather see you physically next to me. And, you know, if I'm sharing the gospel with someone and I have Jesus right there, I can say, Jesus, show them who you are. Do something, um, you, you know, like, like, yeah. and he's saying, no, to your, to your advantage that I'm gone because now the spirit will be with you. And he's going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. But it requires so much faith to believe these words. And so I just feel like, gosh, I've, I'm still missing out on this. I still want to know the Holy Spirit like the Bible describes him. And that's not just by studying about him more. Um, it's, it's seeking, it's dwelling, it's, it's just begging him, Father, I, I want to know what this means.
0: Christians in the family of faith have no problem talking about the Father. It seems that believers have no trouble when we discuss Jesus. But the Holy Spirit mm. is a subject of division mm. within the body of Christ. And so, as you said, at mm. your, your denomination or tradition at church didn't talk much about the Holy Spirit. But then down the road, there's another denomination where, you know, he's the life of the party. Mm. And uh, mm. sometimes the Holy mm. Spirit's neglected and forgotten. And then in, in other circles, uh, they're, they're swinging them around like a claymore. And they're just knocking people yeah. over with the Holy Spirit. So Mm. as as you've studied the Bible, what Mm. does God say about himself and his role as the Holy Spirit?
1: Well, you know, the Bible says in Ephesians 4, there is one body and one spirit. And somehow we are supposed to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. Mm. So he explains there's one body, one spirit, um, just as we we're called to the one hope to which we've been called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one in God, that you know, one, one God and father of all who's over all through all and in all. Um, so in that, he explained that the church should be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. And, and in fact, people like you, you know, God, God's gone up to heaven. Jesus gone up, you know, is, is far above the heavens, far above all the heavens, he says. And he fills people. He gives the, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for work of service or building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. So there's something about what the Holy Spirit, the one Spirit, was supposed to do in making us one. That's why it is so horrible. You know, what what you're talking about is like, gosh, then why is it that when we talk about the Holy Spirit, it has divided us? This is the exact opposite of the will of God. We're supposed to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. There's something the Holy Spirit was. Supposed to do to bring us to oneness, but somehow when our pride and our lack of humility and gentleness and patience and love for one another, in our mocking of one another, um, and that's why he says in Ephesians, we actually grieve the Holy Spirit of God, which again is one of those phrases. I, I studied that word over and over and over again because I'm going, how could I grieve a holy God. Huh. Like, like like you know, could you how do you grieve? How do you cause pain? How do you cause suffering to, to a being who's so beyond us? Yeah. Because we look at that emotion almost like a, a weakness. And 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 yet he says, No, you can grieve him by the way that you know, your bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, you know, your malice. Eh. Like, get rid of all of those things. Those are the things that grieve the yeah. Holy Spirit of God. Mm. So that was part of His role was to
0: make us one. And is the Holy Spirit for unbelievers or for believers? And by that I mean, mm. what is the role of the Holy Spirit in drawing an unbeliever to salvation? And what's His role in sanctifying the follower of Jesus?
1: Yeah, it's, He is for both because He says in John sixteen eight when He comes he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment and that's when jesus right after he says to your advantage because when he comes he's going to convict the world so there's something but the holy spirit dwells in us And so there's something about if we would walk in the power of the spirit and he is put on display through our unity, like the scripture says, when we can strive side by side, um, you know, for the gospel, um, not afraid of anything. It's like the people will get convicted. They'll know of our salvation and of their destruction. That's the spirit's job. Um, but the Bible also says in Romans he talks about the Spirit when he enters into you, like he he makes you a slave to what is right. Um, so so he changes who you are uh, in the sense of um, I think of second Peter two, when he talks about you, you know, like a dog returning to his vomit or a pig going back to the mud, because that's their nature. You can wash off a pig and they will run back to the mud. But what the spirit does is he actually changes your nature to where you were a a slave to sin, but now you're a slave to righteousness. Uh. So once a spirit enters you, now you go and you get your feet a little muddy and you're like, I don't like this anymore. I'm not at peace because I'm not a pig. The spirit changed me and I don't like the mud. I'm a slave to what is right doesn't mean I'm not tempted in my old life, but once we start dabbling and in some, you know exactly what I'm talking about, there's no peace because you're going, this is not who I want to yeah. be. This is not who I want to be anymore. That's who I used to be. And I used to love it and crave it and be okay with it. Um, but now the spirit has entered into me and he's made me a slave to what is right.
0: I love it, it's a miraculous transfor- transformation that happens within your heart and then you begin to think differently you begin to act differently and uh, you're a new creation and, and you begin to change the world around you because of it. I, I, I love it. Francis, one more question about the Holy Spirit here. I believe it's Galatians 5, somewhere right around there, I think it is, that talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Mm. And so when I think of a fruit tree, I think of a tree that's Mm. producing healthy, nutritious apples or peaches or or whatever, and how foolish it would be um, Mm. if if we as uh, gardeners ran around trying to hang fruit on a tree. We we don't want Mm. plastic fake fruit. We don't want to manufacture Mm. our own fruit. We want the tree to produce it organically. So as a Christian, how do I not just try to be more patient but actually allow the Spirit to cause me to be patient and to be more loving and joyful and kind and gentle and faithful. Mm-hmm. I, I think of when you
1: ask, I think of Second Peter chapter one, verse three, where it says, His divine power has granted to us all all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his. Precious and very great promises. So, through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful nature. So, first he says, Look, his divine power granted this to you, so that through his promises, so you know, scriptures, you become partakers of the divine nature, escaping this corruption. But then the very next verse says this. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. So so here he says this thing that happens to us and that he grants us this, this power. And we have everything that pertains to life and godliness. And we can actually become partakers of the divine nature. But it's not just this passive thing that happens to us. Because the result, is, he says, make therefore make every effort to supplement. So there is something on our part that works in cooperation with the spirit, that it's not one or the other, but it is absolutely God has to do a miracle in me. But then I, in turn, also make every effort in striving for these virtues. And so yes, it is a a fruit of the spirit, but I didn't want anyone to think that that means it's, there's no active involvement on our parts and we can just passively then, well, a tree doesn't work, you know, it just happens. It's like, yeah. Okay. But the scriptures say that we're supposed to make every effort and we're supposed to strive for this holiness, this, this righteousness, this purity, and we're supposed to flee immorality. So there's There's human responsibility.
0: Francis, this is so good. We'll continue our conversation about the Godhead after the break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Before the break, we talked about the role and the necessity of the Holy Spirit. Now let's continue our conversation about the roles and the necessity of God the Father and God the Son. Francis, uh, talk to us about God the Father.
1: I've been wrong um, about the Father. Uh, I I don't know if I verbally have taught something that was just blasphemous about him or not. Um, But I know as I've been reading the scriptures lately, I'm going god i i didn't i didn't think about like when Jesus says i don't say anything unless I hear it from the father i don't do anything unless the father tells me to do it because you understand we're we are one and I don't know what it was and i don't want to blame anyone um or the way I was raised or whatever but I saw Jesus as that picture of grace and love. And when I thought of the father, I would think more of the wrath. And, uh, you know, so there was more of a fear of him than there was of Christ. And I would look at the grace of Christ and almost see that as a little bit distinct from the. I'm just talking about my sin. This is not true. So I know that, wow, that would have come across in my teaching and I think it's true for many people in America um, that grew up in the church out here. There may be this view, like God is more angry or or a God of wrath, and then Jesus is not, and He's He's kind of God's mercy, and is and it's like no, 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 they are they are God, and. And it's God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And all those acts of mercy that Jesus did were not Jesus in isolation, like he was different from the father. He says, these are the things that my father does, so I do them. This is what my father says, so I say them. And so I want to clarify that for people, because sometimes when we get into roles, it can take us down uh, this kind of cockeyed path of, of what God is really like.
0: That's so good, and, and it's so great to be reminded that we are talking about the eternal God and we can't put him in nice, neat little boxes. I think if we could, he, he wouldn't be the infinite God that he is. What about Jesus, the, the son of God? Clearly, he had a, a very unique role within the Trinity. He was the one who became flesh. He was the one who mm. died on the cross and rose from the grave. Can we talk a little about mm. what makes Jesus so unique.
1: I think the, the best way is just to read about him, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Sorry I'm got to put my glasses on. I can barely see this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and in invisible. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Just so heavy that there are things that somehow in the eternal mind of God You know, Paul explains in Ephesians how this mystery was made known to him by revelation, but they were things that were not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. So these things are revealed. And he says there are things that were hidden in God who created all things. It was a plan for the fullness of time, but it was hidden in him. Um, So there was uh, th- these things that we're talking about. Somehow, like Noah didn't know about it, Moses didn't know about it, those prophets didn't know about it. There were things about God and this eternal plan of this thing that was going to be revealed through His Son, and it was a part of His eternal purpose. So that now, through the Church, God's manifold wisdom, you, you know, would be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So we're talking about deep, deep cosmic eternal things that God had planned uh, for his son in the fullness of time that we're reading about a little bit in
0: hindsight and still trying to figure it out. Francis, when someone's baptized, they're baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What's the significance of doing it that way?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is what Jesus commanded. And and we have to remember, he rose from the dead to say this, that we are supposed to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In in other words, what I'm saying is, first let's, let's appreciate the weight of this statement. The resurrected Christ has been given every ounce of authority, and he tells us to go make disciples. And baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's like, okay. And you know, before we dissect, well, why did he say that? You know, like, right? This is heavy. This is heavy. And I and I fear this is what sometimes we do. It's like, okay, explain the spirit more. You know, we want to get in these details, which I understand, but but in it, somehow we can lose the weight of going, wait, you're telling me that God himself. Could come into this body. You're talking about the very spirit of God entering into me, and and I, when I hear people talk about the spirit, I don't, I don't, I don't sense the sacredness, the weight, the uh-huh. glory, um, because we want to go on and talk about. Hey, what do you think this means? What do you think this means? Um, but knowing some of the the most obvious, clear truths should cause us to just tremble at it for a while. And I guess that's what I'm saying is, is for those of you guys that are listening, would you tremble at some of these truths that Kirk is bringing up, that the spirit could enter into your body, that Christ rose from the dead and said, all authority in heaven and on earth was given to me. And I'm giving you this command, make disciples and, just, and, and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and just to tremble at that command and go, "Yeah, well, he said that, let's go do that.
0: Francis, I am loving this conversation. And uh, everybody, Francis is gonna stick around with us as we pivot the conversation to a critical need for the church today, unity. He's spent mm-hmm. a significant amount of time examining this and together we're gonna talk through how you and I can be a part of this biblical call. We'll be right back. Francis, we've spent a significant amount of time talking today about the unity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But now I want us to pivot the conversation to the unity that God expects from us, his children, as the family of faith. Uh, You recently wrote a book about this. You've become very passionate about it. And the new book is out all about unity. Why do you think this is a message so important for us? Oh,
1: gosh, (laughs) there's so many reasons. I I, I mean, one, we've been talking about the Trinity and their oneness. And so we as believers are supposed to take on that type of oneness with, with one another, with those we can actually see. I mean, this was God's design. This was, this was Jesus's high priestly prayer in John 17, you know, right before the cross. He's Begging that we become perfectly one. Mm. But then, if you look at the church in America, you go, Oh my gosh, we're so splintered. Yeah. And the, I mean, the Bible says, I and them, and you and me, I believe it's John 17 23. I and them, you and me, may they be brought to complete unity so that the world may know that you've sent me. And have loved them even as you've loved me. So there's something about us becoming perfectly one that would be proof that Christ was the Messiah and that we as believers are loved by God. And so right now, as the world is, you know, especially the Christian world is so divided and split and and everyone's got their own blog about how everyone else is wrong This is not going to lead to the salvation of the people that we love. This is not going to lead to a believability of the Messiah that Jesus really did come. Because look, how else do you explain our oneness? I I, I don't even think we, we believe these words are possible. We're not aiming for this when, okay, we've talked about the Trinity and then he says um that that in in John 17 verse 20 he says I do not ask for these only but for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you father are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so so first it's is explaining that he goes father like you and I are one I want them to have that and you see in the book of Acts in the beginning, it's there for a while, you know, where they they were, they were one in mind and spirit and, and God was adding to their number daily. So there is a fulfillment of John 17. I'm just saying, I want it now. And so that's, that's what compelled me to write the book. I'm going, okay, Jesus prayed for this. So it must not only be possible, but. I think he's going to do it. And I wanna be on that side of unity, uh, one of those that's fighting for those who are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I haven't always thought this way.
0: And I'm so glad that God is the power behind the unifying of his body, because frankly, we live in a culture that loves to see people fight. I mean, think about it. People pay big money to see a great fight. And yet, as the family of faith, we're called to have total unity and harmony with mm-hmm. each other. Yeah. How, how do we create a hunger and thirst for that which by nature we're not really interested in in, in, in other areas? Yeah.
1: But this is what the spirit is supposed to do in us, right? Is uh, that he creates in us this eagerness um, for this unity of the spirit and the bond of yeah. peace. Um, so this is this is something that's birthed in the spirit but it, it you know this through his word we beg people to study the word of God right sometimes you just listen to what others tell you and their interpretation of the word of God and um, I mean for for a long time I was I was around people that that almost looked at unity as okay that's cute but let's get into the hard yeah. doctrines let's get into wrath let's talk about the holiness but I'm looking at the scriptures and going, Unity is a huge, huge theme because of everything we talked about. We're talking about the the, the triune God. This is the core of what we believe is this unity in the Godhead. And now he's saying that that's displayed through the unity of the church. And in no way am I saying unity at the expense of truth. Because there's a, you know, a whole theological world that says the moment you talk about unity, they're always like, oh, those are the guys that don't care about truth. No, no, we fight for truth. We fight for holiness, but we fight for unity. And 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 that has, that's not just a cute little side dish. Um, this, the salvation of the world is dependent on it. Just read the word of God. Yeah, Don't, don't. You know, just listen to it over and over again. Read it over and over again. Don't just quickly go to whatever your teacher tells you or whoever tells you. Get in it to yourself because you're going to see, wow, Jesus was very serious about loving one another and the respect we should have one another. And I actually grieve the Holy Spirit of God if I were to attack Kirk in some way or slander him. And, oh, God, I don't want to do that his spirit dwells in your spirit dwells in him God I I want to honor him and treat him with honor. I mean if there's sin in his life I see I'm going to I'm going to come to him and 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 talk to him about it and love him through that. Um but I'm not going to just bash him and and just slander him. He is your child and I want to be very careful in how I treat him.
0: I know you well enough, Francis, to know that you are a great contender for truth and you are not going for unity at the expense of truth. In, in, in fact, uh, I think that there's something in you, there's something in me because of God's grace and because of his spirit that puts the warrior in us and we love a great fight. We love mm-hmm. division between light and dark and we want to mm-hmm. go for the throat of evil the way that yes. God hates evil but we also have a love for unity within the body of Christ. It's like I will go after and kill the wolf that may be coming to harm my family, and yet I want total unity and oneness and togetherness with my wife and with my kids. And so there's both of that in us. We just have to make sure, I think, that we're, we've got them in the right categories and we know what to divide over and we know what to stay unified over. And that's been our great challenge within the church, right? Because we divide over sideline issues. How -hmm. much water do we baptize somebody with? Do we sprinkle them or do we dunk them? Uh, Do we use grape juice or wine? Are we Calvinists or Arminians? And somehow we take these, what I think are in-house mysteries and uh, mm-hmm. conversations about these yeah. great high and holy sacred things of God. And we use them to embarrass ourselves in front of a watching world. So mm-hmm. Francis, thank you for helping us think through this yeah. stuff. Thank you for the books that you're writing. Thanks so much for sharing all of this with us today. And uh, i look forward to the next time we get together. Hi, I'm Kirk Cameron. Thanks for listening to this episode of Takeaways. If you love the conversations that we're having, please, Follow or subscribe to this podcast to never miss any of this great content. And please consider leaving a positive rating and a review to help others like you discover this show.